topics sometimes, and one of those tough topics, I think, I don't know if this is such a tough topic as it is a just a downright interesting one. Um, my guest and uh, uh, journalist uh, is Tanya Caperni. Am I saying your name right? I should have checked first. Yes. Okay. Thank you, Tanya. Uh, she's a journalist, and uh, what got me connected with Tanya is that she had an article that was published in uh, Atlantic Magazine, and it was about a topic that I'd never thought of. But once I read the title, I thought, of course, of course. The title of the article is, Do Some Trauma Survivors Cope by Overworking? Great topic. I'm absolutely fascinated by this. Tanya, thank you for joining us on the show. What led you to write this article? Thanks. Um, so a kind of interesting combination of things led to this piece. So in 2011, I uh, saw a theater performance called Secret Survivors, which was co-produced by a friend and colleague of mine, Amita Swadin. Um, and it was a production of oral history about survivors of childhood sexual abuse. And it was produced as a really powerful play in New York City in 2011. And I saw the play... And I heard a theme that I had never considered before, which is that some of the survivors who told their stories in that play talked about, as young people, sort of getting overcommitted at school as a way to stay distracted and avoid home. And so that the adults around them may not have realized that they that they needed help and that they were struggling. And I was really um, surprised about this idea of a young person experiencing trauma, kind of leaning into work and overwork instead of checking out. Uh, I think that the the more sort of stereotypical depictions of someone dealing with trauma and grief is that they disengage from their job or school, that they sort of fail or drop out, and that these more stereotypical expectations of grief um, were not always true. So when I heard that, it was really the first time I heard about it. I did some cursory research and realized that nothing had been written about this at all. Um, and since I um, do a lot of work at around the intersections of violence, trauma, and resilience, I thought it was a good chance to dig deeper and to really understand those experiences. I, I was just fascinated by this because I, I have, I'm a childhood trauma survivor, and all of my life I've been told, why do you do so much? I mean, my adult son came to me and said, I think you have ADHD that's never been diagnosed. And I went, oh, really? Thank you very much, doctor. Um, but I've always just been, you know, busy, 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 busy. And when my son was having this discussion with me, he said, why don't you just relax? Why don't you just sit? And I went, if I have downtime, then I go to the dark places. And when I saw the title on this article, I thought, I've never seen this addressed before. So I have personal experience with this. Um, I've also seen this with other survivors of in a partner violence. I've seen it in a lot of places. So it seems to me there's anecdotal information out there. But like you, I found nothing when I tried to search out uh, uh, some some background information for this interview. So yeah. you had mentioned, yeah, uh, I, I mean, there's little. There's really little, and and part of the problem is that workaholism, as a field of study, is really nascent in itself. So we don't even have a scholarly consensus on what is workaholism. Is it an addiction like other addictions? Let alone research about the psychological origins or family structure origins of workaholism. 
Well, and I would think that in our culture that a certain amount of workaholism would get positive kudos. Yeah, that's another uh, angle and issue is that working hard is especially celebrated, especially in America. Um, we, you know, it's 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 almost become a truism that Americans compared to Western European countries take fewer vacation days um, and don't use all their vacation days. We're praised for working hard. And in fact, I've come across some more recent research that um, in the last 50 years, workaholism is actually getting more social acceptance. Um, in, the, in the 50s or so, status symbols of wealth were typically associated with how much leisure time you had. And now, sort of status symbols of wealth are more associated with how much work you have and how much constant work you're doing. So workaholism okay, actually well, is valued. What do you mean by leader time? Leisure time, leisure time. Oh, leisure. I'm sorry, I thought you said leader time. Okay, yeah, all right. Okay, so our concept of of status has changed from the idea of how much we can afford to play to how much work we do. You know, somebody called me not too long ago and said, are you busy? And I said, do you really think that I'm going to be the only person on the face of the earth to say, no, I'm not busy? You know, <laughs> because it seems like everybody says they're busy. I mean, it it, it seems like... You know, kind of like uh, if you admit that you're not busy, it's kind of like the equivalent of admitting that you were sitting in your underwear on, uh, you know, uh, entire days playing video games. I mean, it's it's just not socially acceptable to say that you're not yeah. busy. So, um, you know, it, it's interesting to me that – so at what point does it become not acceptable to do this kind of work? When what what did you find in writing the article? Uh, is there a consensus on what's unhealthy level of work or commitment? Yeah, so there's not a total consensus, but there's a few kind of themes that that come up an, a, again and again. So the first person to kind of coin the term workaholism was a scholar in 1971, Oates, who said that it's someone who whose need for work becomes so excessive that it starts to interfere with their personal life, with their health, with their interpersonal relations. Um, so that's kind of where most people start from. Um, basically, there's a few characteristics that, that are associated with workaholism. One is um, uh, a constant need or constantly thinking about work. So having trouble disengaging uh, and not being able to relax. Uh, it also is typically associated with um, uh, working more than is actually expected. Uh, so working more than is required. Certainly there are jobs that demand you know, 60 or 80 hours a week, uh, but workaholics are doing more than is required and this compulsion is coming from an internal source. Uh, rather than an external source. Um, and we also see workaholics actually feeling unhappy. So they work a lot and they feel compelled to work a lot, but they're really obsessive and and it's, not, it's no longer bringing them joy. Um, they just kind of feel driven to do it. And uh, some health outcomes that, that we're seeing, you know, stress, 
in many cases, alienation from friends and family who resent the person who's, you know, always at the office or even when they're at home, they're thinking about work, so they're not really paying attention to family conversations. Uh, and in the worst cases, you know, they're not getting enough sleep. They're not paying attention to their physical health, blood pressure, things like that. So it, it could actually contribute to um, a shorter lifespan or, or other um, physical ailments. Again, uh, up until you got to the physical ailments, all of these things I can see in our culture that we kind of, we kind of, if you're living in a family with somebody like that, it's probably pretty annoying. But if you're just out in, in society at large, I can expect, I would expect that a lot of people would get positive uh, strokes for some of those behaviors. Absolutely. So that's, yeah. you know, that, that people might actually get reinforcements from their colleagues. They might get promotions, raises, or praise for, for what are actually workaholic tendencies. So it can be quite confusing if the managerial culture in an organization doesn't recognize someone who, who's overworking. But typically, people kind of hit bottom and realize they have an issue because the people close to them are tired of it. So I heard anecdotes um, from people who who describe their workaholic loved ones as having um, these memory brownouts where the family member thought they were having a conversation with this workaholic and their family and that person doesn't recall it at all because actually they were somewhere else. They were in their head thinking about work. So um, family members who resent this person not really being present, not really focusing, and in some cases just the long hours keeping them away from vacations, um, a leading workaholism researcher and clinician that I spoke to, Brian Robinson, who himself is, identifies as a recovering workaholic, described sneaking away uh, during family vacations, pretending he was going to nap and actually, you know, working on, on his um, scholarly articles and, and hiding it almost like it was a bottle of liquor for an alcoholic. So sometimes those, the consequences and the people who realize that it's a problem are our relatives and, and loved ones, not necessarily colleagues from whom it can be easier to hide those things. Yeah. Well, you, and in your article, you um, had talked with uh, Robinson, Dr. Robinson, I believe, um, and he said that it's not just the constant working. It's also, um, if I'm paraphrasing this correctly, uh, it, it's biting off more than they can chew. It's taking on work that they are really not capable of doing and trying for it anyway. Yeah, that's a big part of it because if you can imagine a workaholic, uh, and we can get more into this, sort of deriving a, some sense of fulfillment or control through work, delegating will certainly be very difficult. Uh, if, if it's about doing something yourself and kind of avoiding other hard feelings, delegating doesn't serve you, and you may in fact not trust other people to do it as well as you do. So people bite off more than they can chew and have difficulty trusting others to do it as well as they will. Yeah. Well, that brings up an interesting point because um, when we started you know, talk, the conversation, we were talking about, and in your article, you talk about the workaholism as a coping mechanism and my personal vignette as of, of avoidance, you know, which is a form of, of coping. But now you're talking more about uh, control. So are there many components in your research did you, and in your interviews, did you find anybody talking about multiple components of why people do the workaholism over and over, um, coping and control? Were there other things? Absolutely. Again, because there's not 
really a, a big body of research on workaholism and not a, a scholarly consensus around exactly what it looks like. There's a lot of kind of buckets of what you might describe as psychological motivations for the workaholism. Mm -hmm. So avoidance is certainly one of them. I talked to a lot of people who said, you know, if I just move 100 miles an hour, I can avoid thinking about the thing that happened. Um, or, you know, I keep crying about this event, so I just need to focus on something that I can manage, like this discrete task, and then I will feel fulfilled. And, um, you know, the problem then becomes that they need more and more of that in order to distract from whatever trauma or grief they are avoiding. Control also comes up as another bucket. If life, for, for a trauma survivor, especially if the trauma in early life was something that was repeated or repetitive, there's a sense of unpredictability and there's also a sense of doom or dread, what some people call hypervigilance, where you might be on pins and needles and on edge, kind of waiting for the other shoe to drop if you are a victim of physical abuse. So you're kind of always expecting a threat or you're always on edge. And so if life feels out of control, you feel yourself anxious about possible outcomes, control is a way to soothe that, that there is this place that I am in charge. And I am confident. So that might mean a concrete work task. That might mean checking items off of a to-do list that also might, you know, combine with avoidance in just terms of working extreme hours so that you don't focus on the fact that you feel hypervigilant or anxious. So you just replace those thoughts with something a little bit more procedural, a little more easily controlled. I've been, I don't know if you're familiar with the author, Augustine Burroughs, but I started reading his works, um, oh gosh, years ago. And I think because they speak so closely to me, but there was a movie out that they did a movie on one of his books and he had this really bizarre and abusive childhood with a mentally ill mother. And, but he developed this keenly sharp wit. And so he's written a couple of novels and then he wrote a, a book about his uh, upbringing. And the name of the movie was I heart Huckabees. Um, and I don't remember what the name of the book was, but it, it had, I don't, I could never figure out where they got that title, but, he describes in, in his latest book called Lust and Wonder, he's describing exactly what you're talking about as far as the hypervigilance and the expecting everything to go wrong. And he, he deals a lot in an amusing way with his hypervigilance and his um, uh, resultant uh, behaviors because of the traumas that he went through as a, as a child. So um, I can kind of see what you're saying about that one. So what you're you're talking about is that we people can use this overwork, or I guess it's still debatable whether it's called workaholism or whether it's a true addiction or whatever, but overwork and um, to not only cope, but to also avoid and to create a sense of stability for themselves? Exactly. I think that's a, a great summary. Uh, I think that some people talked about feeling like they needed it like a drug. Um, they got something out of it, a sense of euphoria, a sense of um, being needed, feeling useful in the world. Um, you know, and it's interesting that you brought up Augustine Burroughs. I actually haven't seen the film or read his books, but I know a little bit about his story. And a, a huge part of what I uh, found and that really warrants some more research is that 
one of the most important forms of early trauma that may relate to uh, overwork or work addiction is what some people call parentification, which is the idea that children are kind of asked to be little adults in a way that is developmentally inappropriate. So if they're in a household that has financial insecurity or physical abuse or fighting adults, um, kids kind of feel the need to grab onto something. Yeah, yeah. And so in some cases, uh, this is certainly, you know, we understand that people in poverty, there may be, gener- you know, young children taking care of younger children all the time, and that's not necessarily traumatic, but if a child grabs onto that for their sense of self and to get stability, if they're not receiving love or confidence in other places, then it can really start quite young. And a number of the people I interviewed, some who are quoted in the piece and others who preferred to remain anonymous, talked about, you know, having to care for their for the adults. And so they came yeah. to see their their role in the world as one that needed to kind of achieve these things. Um, and so they saw their love as kind of dependent on being these responsible adults out in the world. Oh, that's uh, absolutely, yeah, absolutely. And that certainly speaks to that, Augustine Bro. It's, it's interesting to me that you haven't read his work, any of his works, but you're familiar with his story. Um, how did How did that happen? <laughs> I feel like the trailer for for that movie was spread pretty far and wide. So, oh, okay, uh, all right, yeah. Um, well, he wrote a couple of novels, and one of them was Cellavision, which is one of the most amusing stories I ever read in my life. I mean, he has such a keenly developed sense of humor. I think that that also it doesn't have much to do with alcoholism or workaholism, but I'm wondering if somehow that fits in. It seems to me that a lot of of children of trauma. Um, developed a very keen, sharp wit, uh, in or, I guess, in order to cope with it. I don't know. Um, but that's kind of a uh, neither here nor there, I suppose, but I find it interesting. <laughs> so, well, I, I um, actually do think it's relevant because any of these things were survival strategies. You know, a child caring for the adults or their older or younger siblings, you know, actually probably served the family or their sense of humor serve them through difficult times, but what happens with any of these survival strategies is that at a certain point they stop serving you. You rely on them and yeah. you realize, oh, I'm using them as a crutch and I'm not facing the underlying issue. And I think that we can have healthy relationships with these escapes. Uh, certainly, most people have to work and yeah. it's useful for us, especially if it's a fulfilling job. With any of these coping strategies, the question is, uh, you know, are you using it in a way that is actually hurting you? Well, and you also mentioned a word that I wrote down here called achievement, recognition and achievement. Um, those are heady things for anyone, whether they're a trauma survivor or not. Those are things that we want. Those are things that, that we strive for. Do you think that is accelerated or... Um, inflated with the people who are using work to deal with previous trauma? That definitely came up in my research. So again, Dr. Brian Robinson, who is quoted widely in the piece and who's a a leading uh, scholar and and clinician on this subject who introduced me to the idea of parentification, definitely talks about this idea that for some people – they received love as conditional rather than unconditional. So they were 
praised or given affection only when they performed or succeeded in certain ways. So like you said about achievement, they came to learn that their self-worth was related to achievement and they didn't trust the love from their caregivers or other people uh, in the absence of that. So I certainly think, again, work exists on a spectrum. For many people, there are healthy ways to relate to work achievement, but there are also self-care and boundaries. And, and people may who are not workaholics may be able to relax simply on weekends and on vacations and know that their success milestones that they've achieved are not harmed by time off, by self-care, by boundaries, by saying no um, to increased responsibility when it's not appropriate. But a workaholic might only trust that feeling of achievement or self-worth or, or being valued in the world if they continue putting more and more on their plate. Um, so what you're describing to me is people who use the, the workaholism or the work escape, if you will, uh, are doing it not only to cope and avoid, but also to get some sort of fulfillment? Yeah. Uh, again, there, there's no scholarly consensus about whether workaholism is an addiction. It is not listed in the uh, DSM, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which is sort of the handbook for, for psychology. Um, but a number of the people I spoke to who I self-identify as overachievers or workaholics uh, did describe it as a drug, um, as something that helps them calm down, uh, that they, in some cases, actu actuated a sort of anti-anxiety drug sentiment for them. So absolutely. Yeah. So, you know, this is such a multifaceted thing. It's kind of surprising to me since there's very little research on it. Um, you mentioned the correlation between the overwork and PTSD symptoms, which are typically you've already described the, the um, kind of the, the flashback mentality and the hypervigilance, but also uh, huge anxiety. Um, is, is one of those, severe anxiety. Um, and I believe you also interviewed um, uh, Ryson. I think it was Rebecca Ryson. I'm searching through my notes here. Um, mm -hmm. And who talked about um, the focus um, for somebody who's doing the overwork because of trauma. Can you um, share with us what you learned from uh, Dr. Ryson? Sure. Um, she is a researcher, uh, I believe, at the University of Georgia, where she's written about um, workaholism and teachers. And her background is in, in clinical mental health counseling. At the school, she works with academically at-risk students to try to support them uh, to and through graduation. So she does, does not examine or her research has not examined workaholism from a from a trauma perspective but when i posed that to her she really said that that makes a lot of sense um, that if a person is feeling out of control in their personal life and feeling insecure it can be very alluring to use work as a drug to just receive praise or positive feedback or or simply withdraw from the difficult feelings. She again, so she doesn't have research about it, but she thought, yeah, that's very uh, aligned with what she's seen and what she's read. That people sort of just feel compelled to work. They don't necessarily feel joyous about it, and they don't get feel they don't get a lot of satisfaction out of it. But if they stop, 
they have withdrawal symptoms. Um, and so they, they stay at the office. Uh, they keep working uh, to compensate either for feelings of inadequacy or feeling less than or for feelings that are actually scary, uh, like you said, you know, um, uh, hypervigilance so, or otherwise. So it, it almost sounds like you're describing a work environment as a kind of a safety created um, where the worker can have more control over what happens, more predictability over what happens, and that that must bring a certain sense of control and um, and security. Yeah, that- and I mean, there, what you're describing is sort of in an ideal scenario, but it, what becomes the problem is that work is not only a sense of security, but it's the only sense of security, and more and more of it is needed to achieve that sense of security. So um, someone who might find fulfillment from their work is one thing, but we're talking about people who uh, obsess over work, at work, after work, in their sleep. Um, It's a coping mechanism that actually stops working, and you just keep doing it. it. It might be described as sort of a maladaptive strategy. There might be some fulfillment, but it's fleeting. And it doesn't address the sort of more underlying sense of either fear or insecurity. So you're describing this escalation, which happens in a lot of different behaviors that become problematic. It's an escalation of those behaviors. Um, did you hear of any extreme cases? I mean, I, we all know about the workaholics where the family is, you know, disintegrates or the marriage breaks up or the kids don't want to hang with dad anymore or whatever. Uh, we all hear um, stories about that. Are you talking a different level, the same kind of level or more? Does it get even worse than that? Yeah. So one of the folks quoted in, in the piece, Chanel Dubofsky, who's a writer who splits her time between New York and Massachusetts, I believe, um, her mother was diagnosed with cancer first when she was seven years old and then relapsed, I believe, around 13 and when Chanel was 13 years old and 15 years old and then actually died during Chanel's um, college um, experience. And Chanel describes, even as early as middle school or high school, where her mother was sick and Chanel uh, experienced what what we might describe as parentification, um, having to stay on top of her mother's appointments and medication. Uh, that Chanel threw herself into the into work to the extent that her friend group and her would have competitions to see who could sleep the least. Uh, and we're talking about a, a middle schooler or high schooler. She would sometimes wake up in the middle of the night with pounding headaches. I think she describes this in the piece uh, that wouldn't go away until she would go finish her homework. Um, And in fact, the semester in college when Chanel's mother passed away, uh, she didn't tell any of professors that her mother had just died and instead stayed on taking some unreasonable amount of of units uh, and completed the semester with with really exceptional marks. Um, And it didn't occur to her that perhaps, you know, it would have been certainly warranted or absolutely understandable to have taken the semester off. Um, so that's definitely one example that that stands out. 
Wow. Um, I see this happening a lot. Um, you know, I, I really do. And it must be, this is why we need the research, because it must be difficult to decide, okay, what of this, when, when does this cross the line between being an acceptable, normal, healthy way to cope with things? And when does it cross the line into being, um, you know, basically self-abuse or self-detrimental behavior? Um, we really need that research, don't we? We do, and I think, you know, my goal as a writer in anything that I do is not to stigmatize people. Uh, I, I try and I hopefully succeed in my writing to really humanize experiences just so that people can see themselves reflected and hopefully get the help that they need. But I think what's important here to note is that many people, even people who may not identify as workaholics or experience overwork, may have had moments where we realize that we we're not setting good self-care boundaries. We pulled an all-nighter too many nights in a row, and we can recognize that. And I think mm -hmm. uh, what my piece and the research really aims to do is to help identify what, what might be a sort of a temporary um, period from what has become more systemic. And again, not to stigmatize people, but to understand that it's not just about the work, that for some people who may be even trying to get help for their relationship to work, if we don't look at trauma, if we don't look at experiences in their past that may have nothing to do with work, we're not getting the full picture. And so my goal is really to kind of non-judgmentally understand like uh, there's nothing unique about having these times where we, we realize that we put too much of ourselves and we didn't set good boundaries. But some people might just need a little bit of a deeper examination if they realize that this has become a, a compulsive habit. And so that we really just want to help people understand, like, how can you soothe yourself in other ways? Because work for some of these people has no, is no longer working as a, as a soothing property. Yeah. That's an interesting observation. I was, I was talking with somebody the other day about infants. Infants have to learn how to self-soothe. And the person I was speaking with ex was expressing concern over um, youngsters who, who were being, their time, in her opinion, the, their time was being so um, structured uh, that they were never given any time to learn to develop the self-entertainment or the self-soothing um, that they are going to need as adults. Do you think, and I know this is a wild question that probably didn't come up in your, your interviews, but um, what crosses my mind right now is, you know, is this a way to try and compensate? Is this the sucking of the thumb and the holding of the blankie for the abused child who is now an adult? Um, I, I think that there's, that's certainly true for some people. Um, the link between trauma and addiction is well studied. You know, we, we totally understand that, that suffering and pain and sort of an inability to tolerate some of those experiences can be for many people at the root of addiction. We understand that about alcohol, drugs, gambling, the list goes on. Uh, that, there's no question about that. It's just that we don't understand that very same connection for when it comes to work. And it sounds like, you know, at least the researchers that I talk to think that that's very feasible, that it is, you know, that, that self-soothing thing uh, that 
many other people who experience addiction are experiencing through work, that work is is either a numbing drug or in some cases a hyperactive drug that kind of lifts up their spirits. And I think um, what what we want to get to a place of is that in some cases there's nothing wrong with some of the creative ways we use to self-soothe, whether it's, you know, moderate uses of music or television or film or, you know, making art or playing in the park. Um, the issue is that hopefully we get still enough chocolate, you know, that ideally we do those things and we have the ability to tolerate sitting still and looking directly at our feelings sometimes, you know, that sometimes we need to face exactly what the thing is. And if if you work so much that you cannot imagine sitting still with your anxiety and naming it and looking at it, whether that's through journaling, whether that's through talk therapy, whether that's through yoga or meditation, that we all need the capacity, in addition to some of these outlets, that we also have to examine our inner worlds. And that that's a really important skill that not not everybody, maybe you could even say many people, didn't get and you have to learn as an adult. Yeah. Well, and I think complicating the whole issue must be this fact that, you know, we value hard work. We we praise hard workers. We want people to work hard. We, you know, extol the virtues of hard work. And But where is the line crossed? It does it have to do with motivation for the work. I mean, is it... Is, do we do we value hard work because of the resulting money or status, or do we value hard work um, because it's a way to get through the world without? Uh, you know, I it, I'm not sure if my question is being very um, articulate here, but I think it must be difficult. How do you decide whether you're overworking? How do you decide whether you're just working hard, which is socially acceptable? and which shouldn't be harmful to you, even though it might interfere. There are a lot of hardworking people that love their families, but they can't go to the games because they can't get off work or the sure. kids or, you know, things like that. So how do you find that balance? How do you make the determination? Did any of your interviews shed light on that? Yeah. So Melissa Clark, um, who's also a researcher who I spoke to and who's quoted in the piece, talked a little bit about how it, it can be difficult to recognize because of sort of social pressure or even social acceptance of workaholism. She told me about a T-shirt that I think uh, was maybe in the 70s or 80s that said something like, if you don't come in on Sunday, don't don't bother coming in on Monday. In some ways, oh. that sentiment actually really wouldn't fly now. We have at least some mm-hmm. cultural conversations about self-care, and I, I think a shirt like that actually wouldn't, would not <laughs> fly. Uh, but like I said earlier, there's actually a lot of social pressures and, and um, acceptance and, in fact, kind of positive associations with people who, who work so much that they don't have leisure time. It seems like, oh, they must be, you know, very important or wealthy or cool. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, if for someone kind of who's just self-examining and trying to figure out how their own relationship to work may or may not be interfering, I really just think about going back to sort of the basics with the definition of workaholism. Is it disturbing or interfering with relationships, either with friends, lovers, or family? Is it interfering with health, so getting enough sleep, eating appropriately, other things like um, heart symptoms, 
Um, and also, are is one able to to take things off their plate or say no or take vacations or turn off email at you know 6 p.m. without major consequence? Uh, some of the people I talked to in the piece said, as much you know, and this person I spoke to in the piece who chose to remain anonymous supervises other people in their organization and said, as a manager, I really encourage my colleagues to to take self-care breaks, um, to do their gym classes. But secretly, I actually think that that's just an excuse not to work hard, and I don't do those things myself. And so this person really struggles to take breaks without guilt. So I would just Mm -hmm. say, you know, ask yourself, when was the last time you took a vacation? And even if it was recently, did you check email on that vacation? Or what are some of the other signs that perhaps you didn't truly unplug? And if you didn't truly unplug, did somebody ask that of you? Uh, or was that something that you sort of designed, uh, decided yourself? You know, it's, it's important. It's great to feel important in your organization, but it's certainly not great to feel indispensable or like everything's going to fall apart if you don't check your email every five minutes. And so that's really where I, I would encourage people to investigate themselves. Well, and I live in the world of, you know, high tech out here, and it's almost like there's a self-congratulatory thing about, oh, yes, I worked through, you know, I put in a 14-hour day, and yet, you know, and we have these high tech companies that have all of these wonderful massage chairs and on-staff massage therapists and, you know, gymnasiums and, you know, everything else. And yet, if you go on a tour of them, oftentimes they're completely empty, you know. Uh, So there's kind of that idea that, oh, yes, we want to provide all this stuff for our employees. And yet the employees kind of, I don't know whether it's, you know, pressure from above or pressure that they put on themselves, but they almost congratulate themselves on the fact that they haven't taken a vacation or that they haven't, uh, you know, gone down and used the gym or the massage or the sleeping pods, you know. <laughs> it, 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 it almost conveys a sense of status that you may have those things available to use, but that you yourself are way too busy to actually use those things. Um, so I'm wondering if status is also a factor in, in some of this um, unconscious decision to work uh, overly overly hard in your life. Um, it seems like there's a multitude of motivations for it. Yeah, there seems to be some support for that idea in, in, in some preliminary recent research. As I said, I, I believe I found it in the Harvard Business Review um, that kind of actually there's increasing social acceptance for workaholism in some of the ways that you described, that it is a status symbol to have to work all the time. It means that you must be very important or high profile or have some kind of very high profile job. But there's also, in addition to just status, there's also just the realities of technology, that it is possible to be constantly working, even if you're traveling, even if you're at home. Um, So that has made it difficult for anybody to set boundaries with work. And that's something that workaholics and non-workaholics can certainly relate to. It's just that fact is probably contributing to people who struggle with overwork. Whereas some of us, whereas other people perhaps have overcome that by, um, you know, setting boundaries. You see a lot of people online talking about, oh, you know, don't plug your phone in in your room, try to not use it after 9 p.m. 
all of us probably in some ways are struggling with technology, but it, it's its ability to be constantly working is probably making it quite difficult for people who struggle with overwork. Yeah. If somebody suspects that they are, well, let me back up before I ask that. Um, what it seems to me that in this conversation, if we suspect that we are working and overworking in order to, um, for whatever reason, it seems to me that the first question we should ask ourselves is why are we doing this? Why are we doing this? Are we doing this for uh, external praise? Are we doing this because we feel such a deep commitment? I have a friend who um, is possibly terminally ill, and she has just she's just working like a dog because there are things she wants to accomplish before her time is up. Um, so it, does that make her a workaholic? I I wouldn't think so. Um, but you know, I, I, it would seem to me that the first question to ask would be why? Why are we doing this? And then the second question would be, what, what, what is it doing to us to work this hard? Do those seem like reasonable questions? I think um, those are a good place to start. And I think one of the reasons we need much more research on workaholism alone and the possible uh, causes or correlated issues is that, like you described, we need research on different motivations and different identity groups. So. I think about this issue around workaholism, and then I think about people who perhaps due to poverty or other things really do need to work a ton, that for everyone it's not really a choice. So I talked to a few people who are immigrants or children of immigrants who talked about really needing to um, uh, to impress or um, achieve for their parents. There was a lot of pressure uh, as perhaps the first generation in the U.S. And I think that there is some research about kind of overachieving immigrants and children of immigrants. And so I would be interested in some research seeing what's happening there, what what are healthy and sort of unhealthy levels. Uh, you know, I'm also interested in hopefully seeing more research around the stress of racism and stereotype threat. So we, we understand, and there's a lot of research about stereotype threat that um, people of color in particular are often treated as a representative of their race in ways that white people are not. So this one black person in the office, how they perform is seen as speaking for all people in their race. So under that condition, you know, is there this really deep pressure to perform in order to kind of overcome assumptions that, that people of color are, you know, are are not as capable or smart. So um, absolutely, people should ask themselves these questions, but then I would also like research, you know, that has, takes a little bit of a broader sociological lens to understand why marginalized groups may actually truly experience more pressure to work that is not coming from internal uh, and what society might kind of be um, expecting of them. Well, yeah. I, I mean, and I think that, you know, the, that cultural aspect, too. I mean, are, are certain cultures more, you know, like you mentioned, the first generation of other, you know, are, are there are there pressures that influence that um, that not everybody, you know, is exposed to or whatever? The other thing that I would like to see research on, as, of course, my, my area of, of expertise and interest is uh, intimate partner violence, gendered violence. And I would like to see that a research as to how women come out of that experience 
and what it does to them. I, I, I don't know if I mentioned this to you, but my, my dissertation research is a relational study between women who have experienced domestic violence and who have never experienced domestic violence and long-term job satisfaction. Because I think, you know, I'm hopeful that my research will indicate that there is a correlation between, um, you know, higher job turnover, higher, you know, underemployment, higher unemployment, and less uh, job satisfaction uh, for women who have experienced IPV in the past. So I would think from my background doing that to reading your article, I would think that even if this was not childhood trauma, um, I, I have a funny feeling that, that this uh, would come out uh, as some very interesting findings if people chose to um, survey and research that particular population as well. So interesting. Absolutely. Yeah, I spoke yeah. to one person who uh, is in the piece who described as an adult being in an abusive relationship and actually the person they were in an abusive relationship with was their collaborator on a creative project and described sort of throwing herself into that project as a way to to distract and and feel in control when when the rest of life was just too upsetting um there's also some existing research again about uh intimate partner violence survivors which just like in passing mentions the possibility that they might use work to kind of run away from the abuse but it was just sort of a an an afterthought in the research. I mean, I, I think this is absolutely a possibility. I think I just caution against kind of over-assuming because I think, like I said at the very beginning, there are people for whom work is not the place that they throw it themselves into. There, I think there's certainly people who run away from abuse by avoiding work or avoiding social situations um, who might identify as sort of underachievers uh, so I think there's no sort of clear through line around how that's going to manifest. But I think it's safe to say that we have enough to understand that trauma, whether childhood, adult, or ongoing, can affect people's relationships to work, whether it's, you know, over or under work. And it, what's so interesting, I think, about your article is that I really honestly, and I've done a lot of research into trauma, you know, and it really never dawned on me to think about how people work. Uh, I, I, I've looked at relationships. I've looked at, you know, I mean, all of the other categories, all of the other um, uh, interactions that you can imagine I've, I've seen, read about, whatever. Never have I read about the potential workaholism. And as I mentioned, for me, I mean, I had an immediate boing. <laughs> okay, <laughs> maybe this is something I need to look at, you know. Um, so I think that this your article is very uh, very uh, uh, timely and uh, it really sheds some light on something. And I agree with you. I hope that we see some real concrete research into the area. If somebody's interested in learning more about this, what can you suggest? I mean, we both found that there's a paucity of of research and written information materials out there. What would you suggest to somebody who wants to learn more about this particular issue? Sure. Again, there's not much, especially that's written in a lay audience-friendly format, but I would suggest that the book Chained to the Desk by Brian Robinson, who's sort of one of the leading uh, thinkers on this subject and himself is a person who in private practice works with people who are uh, identified as workaholics. Um, I would also say that there uh, are 12-step programs uh, that exist 
in the U.S. and and around the world, and there's one specifically called Workaholics Anonymous. Uh, I I know that there are various perspectives on 12-step programs, and I'm not here to endorse or uh, criticize, but um, it's certainly a resource that's out there um, that that some people have found helpful, and they have some uh, pamphlets and resources that sort of define um, the problem and some possible solutions. Um, and I would just put a call out there, if, you know, for anyone who's listening, uh, to please write more and research on these connections because we really don't know, like you said, enough about workaholism in itself and other uh, experiences that might overlay with it. Uh, when the piece came out and it was promoted on social media, where a lot of people just saw the headline, which, as you said, was the question. The headline question was, do some trauma survivors cope by overworking? And so many people online almost laughed and just said, duh, of course. It was such a (laughs) no-brainer to a lot of people on the Internet. And so given that fact that a lot of people messaged me privately saying, oh, my God, thank you for putting a name to something that seems so obvious and I've always experienced, that given how many people were just like, duh, it's really shocking that there's there's not more research about it. And I don't totally understand why, uh, but I really hope that that, that can change and really uh, help help some folks. Well, you know, I don't think a lot of people realize it, but, you know, the graduate schools, uh, schools of psychology, schools of social work, et cetera, um, if you have a college or university next to you that offers Ph.D. programs, you know, if you have an interest that you would like to see investigated, contact the school and ask them because grad students are often searching for things to study for their dissertations and for their, their research. Um, and if you have an idea like this, I mean, I've already sent out this and a couple of emails on this. You know, if you've got somebody coming up who's stu- you know wants to study da 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 da, how about looking into this? Um, so you know, it doesn't hurt to let other people know that this would be a great area to research because a lot of times I think it's probably like, well, like I said, I mean, it never even occurred to me until I read your headline. Never even occurred to me, even though once I read the headline, I agreed with most of your respondents that. Of course, of course, this is so clear. Um, but unfortunately or fortunately, uh, we don't really resolve issues unless we've quantified them. We don't really take on topics and issues and try to come up with solutions to them if we don't have that research. So that's a missing vital step if we really want to do something and learn more about this issue so that we can help people with that issue. So, um, you know, if, Absolutely. if you have yeah, so anybody that you know who's um, either affiliated with the university or a psychology program or something, let them know that this is a topic that would be great for a research study. Um, it, it sure couldn't hurt. I'm sure it would help. Um, do you have, can I ask you a personal question, uh, Tanya? Do you have Absolutely. Do you, do you have the workaholic tendencies in you? I. It's, it's an interesting question because as I was working on it, I started to really ask myself that. And I think the the short answer is is yes and no. I think that um, I was drawn to this piece more so because I didn't relate to this experience. And I thought, you know, if I think of my own experiences, I I relate more to being someone who, as a young person, kind of checked out of school uh, during periods of of trauma and distress. Uh, I I sort of was someone who teachers might have assumed was capable and 
you know, was on a path to do very well, but kind of um, deviated from that, just stopped caring, sort of stopped doing homework, um, was just depressed and avoidant. Uh, and so I was drawn to this because it seemed so different from my own experience. I think I relate to it in moments um, when I think about uh, sort of tech and how easy it is to just you know, spend an hour constantly cycling through this email inbox, that email inbox, this social media mm -hmm. application, that social media application. I think in moments I have, I have this experience where I realize something's going on for me right now, and I'm just sort of spinning my wheels on the internet, passing the time. Um, but on the whole, I'm happy to say that I'm someone who loves breaks from work. Um, and I'm lucky to have a job and a career and a vocation that um, allows me to do that. And and as a writer, it can sometimes be easier to take breaks from work because sitting in the garden and thinking about about your project is also writing. So it doesn't always require you know sort of being behind a, a desk. Sometimes it's too easy to take those breaks as a writer. <laughs> <laughs> at least it was for me when I was doing writing as a career. Um, but um, yeah, that, that's interesting. That's interesting. So you came at this from a different perspective, but I suspect that you probably know people in your own life who um, fit some of the profiles that you wrote about here. Um, because I do. I mean, I can't imagine that you don't know somebody. Absolutely. I, I, I'm fortunate um that I think that my sort of immediate circle are people who really look out for one another and kind of call each other if they're noticing something. But I, I hear stories and I and I know from from people that I love that they're concerned about their partners or they're concerned about other people in their their wider circle, where they where they notice people sort of dipping in and out of workaholic tendencies. So perhaps it's worth researching more just this idea of it can be sort of phases of one's life where someone's perhaps in a little bit more of a state of equilibrium and is able to close the door in the laptop at five and go home, and then something happens and they're um, stirred once again into really deriving a sense of security and a sense of self from work. So I have some experiences of that in, in my friend circle of people kind of having it come and go and their partners going, oh, no, I I think this person is is starting to struggle with it again. You know, they've canceled on dinner plans or happy hour a bunch this week. Um, so it can also just be something that's temporary. Yeah. Well, and we do, as human beings, go through ups and downs and swings and uh, bouncing backs and everything. I, but it would seem to me that this, if this becomes, as you mentioned, uh, you know, the key word, of course, is escalation. And I think another key word is repetition. Um, so, you know, if, if, if it becomes chronic and if it becomes more escalated, then it, I think no matter what the behavior, you have to kind of look at yourself and say, is this becoming a real problem, um, whether it's eating the chocolate or overwork. Um, so that's just kind of the way it is. But I thank you so much, Tanya, for, for writing this article, doing the research. I plan on doing more. Well, you know, I, I'm, I'm, you, you got me here. I'm, I'm uh, interested in this topic, and uh, uh, I'd like to see some more work done on it. So I'm going to push it wherever I can. Uh, and you are also working on a collection about violence, trauma, and resilience. 
Um, is that an offshoot from this particular uh, story, or is that just coincidental to, you know, or, or com a companion piece to this? Um, well, thanks again for having me, and yes, please, please do uh, keep this topic in circulation, and I would love to see other journalists and, and scholars uh, writing about it. I think we need both the kind of lay audience friendly stuff and the more um, clinical research. Um, the the violence is trauma resilience is sort of themes that I've always been interested in. So this journalistic piece uh, just kind of came as a result of, of that always being a focus of mine. Um, but the, the rest of the body of work that I'm sort of slowly chipping away at is more uh, sort of personal essays, more literary essays. Uh, the, the journalistic and reported stuff are things that I'm kind of always have uh, a ball up in the air about, but uh, the longer project is likely more some stuff about uh, family history and some more lyrical essays that I've done over the years about places and people. Uh, so this likely will not be an immediate part of such a collection, but just I, I love kind of keeping my eye on these themes. Yeah. Well, they're so prevalent. Um, we we don't want to talk about it too much, and we tend to think of it as absolutely unique to have uh, trauma and violence. And uh, But, in fact, it's pretty universal in the human experience in one form or another, and that whole resilience component such a difference in not only our lives but the lives of those people around us and our children, et cetera, after we're trying to deal with some of this stuff, uh, violence that we read about socially like the school shootings or whether it's personal uh, trauma that we go through. It impacts us at a very deep level. And so um, the more we know about it, the better it is. And, and I applaud you for, for delving into that, and I wish you success with that. When you get done with that, let me know. We'll do a, we'll do a show about that as well. <laughs> Was, Great, was thank any, you. Yeah, and I just hope I hope there's more conversation about the resilience piece too, because I think we can yeah. get really stuck in sort of defining the problem, and in some cases, kind of characterizing people as lost or broken. And I think really, kind of human connection lies in in shared joy and shared resilience strategies. You know, things some of which we've inherited, our our cultural rituals and our music. Um, but I just can't wait for that. <laughs>